or, and yeah, there used to be a Roman settlement. And how long have you been living here since? So I, I moved to the UK in 2018. Yeah. And I, uh, so that was after six years in Stockholm, mm -hmm. 2012 to uh, 2018. And, uh, yeah, um, but the <clears throat> St. Albans is close to London, so I probably go into the city about once a week. Yeah. Mm. But you visited Stockholm now for some reason. Was it some special occasion for coming to Stockholm now? Or? Well, the, the official reason for my visit is to renew my Swedish passport. Oh, oh. <laughs> that's a good one. Um, yeah, a, I, I couldn't get through to the Swedish embassy in London. Oh. So maybe they'll uh, listen to this podcast and be ashamed <laughs> of themselves. <laughs> so I came here to, to apply for a, a new passport, uh, but uh, I've been meeting with old friends, former colleagues. I did a little presentation for Data Edge. Oh. Uh, and I know you, you, you just hosted Daniel Tidstrom for yes. Data Edge. Uh, this podcast is one of the highlights. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, for us as well. <laughs> Super nice. And there was such a good timing that we could make this happen when you were in, 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 in Stockholm. It was awesome. Yeah. What's the pros and cons with Stockholm, you would say? I mean, you spent six years here before, you came back now. Is there any difference between now and your previous time in Stockholm? As it often happens in life, I think you appreciate something more when you interact with it less often. Right. So when you live here, you start taking things for granted. What's the saying? It's something like, uh, you don't miss the cow until the booth is empty, right? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, that's a good saying. Yeah. Um, so it's, 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 it's a lovely city. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that uh, we're all aware of some of its shortcomings, which is... Uh, well, things are expensive. Yes. Especially alcohol. Yes. <laughs> and the climate uh, leaves some room for improvement. So it, it, it's not that cold, because I remember where I come from. Uh, for me, it was still uh, a warmer place to come. Mm. But then the winter is, uh, is long and dark and full of horrors. Uh, so that would probably put some people off. So moving to the UK, it gets warmer. Uh, you get more sunshine which england is not particularly famous for but people don't realize that it mostly rains in the north yes i think it rain, rains less in london than it does in paris so it's mm. uh it's not really uh it's not as miserable as people imagine it of course london is probably one of the top three cities in the world in terms of uh, mm. uh, being global and uh, metropolitan. Yeah, and, and you know. what is the, do you have any view of London size, population-wise right now? Because it is not also one of the bigger cities, I guess. I don't have the number over the top of my head, but I would imagine that uh, we're getting into um, like eight figures, so... 10 million, give or take. Yeah, yeah sure. I just googled it. So it's nine million right now. It's nine yeah. in 2019. So it could be higher now. But so it's and, and what and what is the population of Sweden? Is it is it over 10 yet? I guess so. I, I think I think London and Sweden is almost on par. Yeah, it's 10.3 in Sweden. 10.3 in Sweden. I remember going to school. We learned there is eight million people in Sweden. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Yeah, but London is basically the size of Sweden then. Thank you. Uh, yes, about the same size. And um, 
I think if uh, if we were to talk about the most exciting cities in the world, big cities, yeah. it doesn't have to be everyone's cup of tea, but if you want to experience a big city, then it's London, Tokyo, New York. Mm? Ah. Yes, they, they would probably compete for the top position. I, I, I like that. Let, you know, what, what, if you had to make your top... Uh, it would not be New York. I haven't been to Tokyo, though, so I can't say that. But I've been far too many times in New York, and I can't say I like it that much. But, but it's a big apple. Come on. No, it's, it's smelly. <laughs> it's, it's very stressful. Uh, I, I think it's ugly buildings. I, I think I appreciate Canada a lot more. Yeah, but there's no big city in Canada. No, but big <laughs> cities is not a big, is not a positive thing. No, but but no, but the list the list was no. What's the big cities? You know, but what is, no, no, what no, is no. the great cities in the great, not the biggest. Okay, right? okay, okay, okay. Uh, Moscow is is Moscow bigger than London. Fourteen, I guess. Fifteen. Yeah. But but in terms of being a global uh, metropolis, I don't think it would be able to compete with London. So it's yeah. it's, a, it's a different. Yeah. Vibe. yeah. So so what we're defining now is some sort of great city metropolis financial uh, hub. Uh, you know. More about the vibe rather than just uh, the, the sheer number of people. Good. Okay. And then New York, Tokyo, London. I I kind of like that list. I've been to Tokyo, I've been to London, I've been to New York, and I think they're all amazing. Have you been to Mexico City? Uh, no, I haven't been to to the Americas at all. Mexico City is, is ridiculous. I've been there once, mm. but but as a livable city, I mean, mm. like it's it it's not a vi- it's not a so it's something else. Even if it's thirty million or something crazy mm. like this, okay. Can you you know so what what would be your list of great cities with a vibe? You no, sorry for me. Oh, you're with eating, vibe. Sorry, yeah. I, I caught you off guard. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I do love uh, Canada. I think it's an awesome uh, country, and um, the people there. I guess I haven't been to Australia, but I can imagine that's been an awesome place. And I, I you can't take that. That, that was going to be mine. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sorry to say so, but actually I do like Sweden. Yeah. And it's perhaps because I've traveled so much over my years that I don't see the, the beauty in, in traveling that much. I actually do enjoy my home much more. And I think people underestimate, you know, the... The city they're born in, and the city they live in, you take it for they granted. Don't, you don't really experience all the nice places because you don't do like sightseeing in your own town. But if you actually try to do that, you will find that it's actually an awesome city. So I would say, sorry to say, but my own Stockholm. town is really nice. Stockholm is nice, and Kalmar is the best one because that's where I'm from originally. <laughs> so that's, yes. but that's not a city. Yes, it's a city. Is it? Yes, it's a town. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I was just teasing you, and 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 uh, I I I lived for a couple of years in Sydney, and mm-hmm. I really adore Sydney. And uh, I don't know, three and a half million, four million, something like this. But it's the vibe, and it's also the ocean, the surfing. I mean, like it's the whole package that is for my private uh, enjoyment, uh, perfect. Uh, but yeah. I I do think the Big Apple is the Big Apple in some ways. I haven't been there many. You've probably been there too many times. I've been there too many times. I haven't been there enough. I'm still awed by it. I think Paris has something unique feeling to it, but London is, in my opinion, bigger. You know, it's even more of a financial district than all this. Mm. Anyway, Mm. I think we uh, we need to get into the meat and potatoes (laughs) of of this podcast, and I really want to welcome you, Mikhail. uh, uh, and I'm going to butcher your surname now. Shilikin? 
Silken. Silken. Not too bad, maybe. No, no, you're doing great. Okay, thank you. So, so awesome to have you here, and it's especially awesome to have an international guest. Uh, you know, and I would argue it's actually our first one. <coughs> it's our first proper international proper guest. International. Well, and, well, I mean, I, I count uh, Mikael as our domestic you know, one I, because me and him we have. What about Martin? Um, oh. Martin. Yeah, we've how, had, how is he less international than I am? Right. <laughs> European uh, Union. Yeah. Is this why you draw the line? You left Brexit, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I'm uh, I'm talking a little bit more about that. The majority of our guests actually, because we opened during the pandemic, right? Mm. So majority of our guests has been either uh, uh, at the beginning it was mostly people living in Stockholm and then a little bit in uh, Sweden. But we have the ambition was that we will have people flying over to um, to do the podcast. So when uh, you said that you are in town, I said like, okay, this uh, must happen. So for me, you're the first international that is coming mm -hmm. actually for the show from London. So that someone yeah. who lives abroad, right? Okay, okay. And, so and came for the podcast, right? So it's good. Yeah, yes. Yeah. So now we because we we would have you know now we did the opening, so everybody knows you had other mm -hmm. reasons. But otherwise, we would have told you come solely for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main reason. Feel free. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we are so honored to have you here. And it's you. Uh, I think you have a very exciting career and there are many interesting topics. And and what, what I really would like to do is a little bit understand uh, contrast be between some of the, the work that you have done and, and very particularly to frame this, uh, which is maybe a little bit the theme of the whole podcast. You've been working at some of the real as I would call real data natives, uh, data science front runners, like in your career, and how you're working in one of the most passionate sports of football, working at Arsenal. So it's so it's a bit of a contrast, you know. So so maybe we can explore that uh, throughout uh, this podcast. You know, how does it work? Uh, how was it in the different places? Uh, so we are really looking forward to this episode. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Uh, you nailed it on the head. Um, you hit it on the head. Uh, Arsenal is, is a very unusual gig. It's, it's quite different from what uh, I'd done before. So most of my data scientist career happened at King, working with Candy Crush. Yeah. And as you said, uh, they're probably one of the front runners when it comes to data analytics, data science, uh, being a data-driven company in general. And in 2018, I moved to a different country with a very uh, unique culture uh, to work in a very unique industry, mm. which <clears throat> in some ways is lagging behind industries uh, like IT, FinTech, mobile gaming. Yeah. Because of course, uh, it has a very long history and some, uh, some of the clubs, they've been around for over a hundred years. And it's, it's a very old um, industry. It's an old so, industry. So it, yeah. it, it's, it's an, how should I put it? It's an analog culture. We are playing football. We are people. It's, a, it's people playing football, right? Not even just analog. I would even say organic. Organic. Even or better. Biological. Because you, you, <laughs> even you, better. Even better. But it's getting increasingly cyber, right? Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say so. Because um, once you're there, 
out on the pitch. You're, you're still just a human running around on your two legs. Um, you don't have any augmented reality uh, helping you in any way. And there aren't even any modern technologies to communicate, to, to improve the communication between the players and the people on the bench. It's still the good old shouting. But for people actually watching it, they, they do have a lot of like virtual help at least, right? To, to it's, sort of it, it's, it's a different thing for, for, for the fan. Yeah. But for the player, for the coach, it's, the game itself is pretty much as it used to be. Of course, nowadays you may have an iPad at the bench, you may get um, real-time data, but it sort of it, it happens around the game, not in the game. So, and, and I'm not a sports fan at all. So sorry for asking stupid questions now. But but they do have some kind of video help with the judges, right? Or do they? Uh, there is uh, a thing called VAR, uh, yeah. video assistance uh, referee. It's just people sitting somewhere in a room, and they can uh, look at an incident on the pitch uh, from different angles, different cameras, and help the main referee. Um, in 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 critical situations, if there is a suspicion of of a um, mm. penalty or red card offense, something like that, um, so that is supposed to improve the refereeing of the game. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be such a great uh, episode. But let, let's start a little bit from the beginning, Mikhail. Mm. Uh, so a little bit like uh, who you, how, how are you as a person? Who are you? And if you could give us an overview sort of from uh, the school and, you know, what's yes. your schooling and, and give us an overview of the key steps of your career where you've been working with data science, etc. Well, um, so I would describe myself as a data scientist. Uh, uh, at this point in my in my career, but uh, to start from the beginning, I have uh, humble origins. So I, I grew up in Russia, in a relatively small uh, small city, and I graduated. I went to study in Moscow uh, for my for my union. I graduated in two thousand six, Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology, and the first proper job I had was actually with a software company. Uh, back in Russia, and when I joined them, they were a really small company focused on backup software, and things like that. And surprisingly, now they're one of Arsenal sponsors. Really? So all that time ago, I think I joined them in 2002 or something like that, and 20 years later, here they are sponsoring <laughs> Arsenal, so uh, 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 protecting your data and all that kind of stuff. They're a big uh, global company. Uh, now, and uh, shortly after my uh, shortly after graduating my uni uh, my, my university, um, I already had a job, and then uh, an opportunity came up to to go on a business trip to Japan. Uh, which, uh, being young and adventurous, I I took and I spent a couple of years with our Japanese partners working as a middleman. <coughs> Um, essentially translating Japanese English to Russian English. Oh, so, translation. You, you, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I say I had to translate it. Uh, uh, you, you can imagine that the cultural barrier is, is so high that you can take nothing for granted. You can send an email which has one or two sentences mm -hmm. and there is such a high risk of people on the other end misinterpreting it. 
because mm-hmm. uh, Japanese people think very differently from Russian people or from the American people. And uh, eventually you learn that you, you cannot make any assumptions. So I, I think that really helped me understand the importance of communicating things clearly, uh, concisely, unambiguously. So do I understand it correctly? It's one, language is one thing, culture is another, and you need to understand both to properly do... And then, then they combine. Because yeah. uh, if, if you learn anything at all about... Uh, a, a language like Japanese language, you understand that okay, people think differently. Right, they don't have the same structure mm. in their head. No, because uh, the language, uh, the grammar, the vocabulary, they define our thinking to an extent mm. that we probably don't imagine fully. Right. Um, you speak Japanese, by the way, or uh, just a little. I'm I'm not very good at picking up new languages. Mm. Um, so. My Swedish leaves a lot to be desired, even though I spent six years here, and my Japanese after three and a half years was very rudimentary. Uh, I think uh, I think I mostly developed my intuition. So I wouldn't really understand what people tell me, but based on the context and the lingo, the uh, body language, everything like this. You uh, yeah, those uh, those cues. If you ask a yes or no question. And they talk at you for five minutes, you know, it means no, no. <laughs> but they're being very polite, uh, things like that. Um, so that was a very exciting time in, in, in my life. Uh, the job wasn't particularly exciting. I was the only uh, foreigner at the company and not many people would even speak English enough to, to, to carry a conversation. But it was a great time to experience a very different culture broaden my horizons. Um, I would spend quite a bit of my spare time not only with Japanese people but with other expats, Europeans, Americans, Australians. Uh, so, so that's uh, a good thing about uh, a city like Tokyo. You get exposed to much more than just one culture, mm. much more than just the locals. Um, after my contract expired, I, I also I, I stayed behind and spent another year in Japan playing online poker for a living. Oh, oh interesting. That's I nice. have some friends doing that as well. Um, and could you, did, were you playing on the international scene or, you know, how, how did that work? Well, it's online, so you get people from different countries. Um, I think it was, I don't think online poker was available in the US. So it was mostly Europeans, I think. What year was this approximately? So we're talking 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, good old times. Um, and you could make a living on this. I was making a living, but not quite. I, I wasn't good enough, so I was struggling to make my ends meet. So it would be uh, it would be enough to live in a, in a in a less expensive country, but Japan isn't uh, isn't one um, <laughs> exactly. So what, what do you think about AI? I mean, these days AI can beat the heads, you know, beat the the best humans in heads up uh, poker. Mm. Do you think? There will be an like an impact on the way that we play, play poker as humans, given that AI has progressed as much as it has. Well, I gave up playing poker around 2011. I think it mm-hmm. was getting um, just uh, it, it wasn't worth uh, worth the effort anymore for me personally. Mm-hmm. And um, even if there wasn't a full blown AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, playing poker at the moment. I think uh, people are already building bots. 
because yeah. even with a simple uh, set of rules, you can probably beat the field, so to speak. You, you're disciplined in, in, in your strategies. Because yeah, if if it's a script, mm-hmm. it's not going to go on a tilt after 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 a bad hand, uh, and it can play twenty four seven unless you want to keep it on a, on a down low that it's a bot. But did you have a strategy when playing? I mean, one thing is to you know try to calculate the pot odds or something that mm. you have. Another is to try to you know master the psychology of the people, at least when playing live. Mm. Did you have a strategy on on what's what was your main approach, so to speak, in how to play poker properly? Yes, you you pick up the basics. Pot odds, of course, you would need to be able to uh, roughly calculate um, um, your your pot odds, the probability of winning this hand, and if it was worth yeah. uh, to to put any more money in in the pot. As as a professional player, you would probably use some kind of software to collect data on your opponents. So, when playing online, you had a computer next to you that calculate calculated the odds for you, or you would. You would probably run it on the same machine. Yeah, so you would okay. have your poker room client open with a right. bunch of poker tables. Yeah. And then you would ideally have that information on other players just overlaid. On oh, top so you of have that. player statistics as well uh, next to it. So you can see the other players in the same game, so to speak. Yeah. And so if you want to be profitable, <clears throat> it's not so much about, uh, of course, you want to play well. But it's even more important to identify people who play worse than you yeah. and people who play better than you. Yeah. So you know where you, what you're getting yourself yeah. into. If you sit down at a table and you, you don't see any any fish to use uh, the lingo, if you don't see any players you can exploit, probably you are the fish. And <laughs> probably it's time to stand up and, uh, yeah, a, a big ego uh wouldn't help you. That's a good one. If you don't see any fish, you're the, the fish. fish. <laughs> That's a t-shirt. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. But uh, I don't know so much about it, but I, I don't know. I can't cite where I stumbled upon it, but I learned or read somewhere that right now there there's quite a bit of AI support. Uh, there, there's algorithms being uh, written and they are... So any of the professional players today, especially if you're playing online, do you have some sort of tools next to you in many ways? I mean, like you, you understand the pro player profile. You also understand betting strategies. Have you looked, do you, I don't know that in detail. I've just learned that, oops, here there is a lot of data and AI going on in the background as actually augmented AI. So it's actually supporting the player. Augmented humans. Oh, augmented humans. That's what I meant. Yeah. What's, do you have any insight in this or have you seen it? I'm not sure why you would need to support a human instead of just replacing the human. <laughs> yeah. Because if you have a sufficiently good AI, which outperforms uh, the best poker player, then if you want to override it, you're probably make, making it worse. But I think this is an interesting question. I mean, we, we're going to get into your book as well very mm. soon, but... You know, I always say AI is good at some things and, and humans are good at other things. And of course, AI is really good in calculating odds and things like that. But understanding people and, and the like deeper analysis of people's thinking, mm. don't you think humans potentially is a bit better than that? So if you combine the two and, and, and use AI together with humans, you would have the best of both worlds and potentially you ha- would have a stronger AI augmented game. My hunch is not anymore. 
Mm. Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, that certainly is that point. <laughs> At some point, it will not be the case anymore. Uh, I understand that um, maybe as a human player, you can see that your opponent is sweating or something like that, or, mm. there, is, or, or there is a particular tell, and maybe yeah. your AI wouldn't have that information. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's a big difference playing online and live as well. So online, I guess it's really hard to beat the AI today. But but playing live, don't you think it's still? Well, I, I remember reading that uh, AI have have beaten uh, yeah. human players. The, the, the so probably even yeah. without looking at their face. Yes. Uh, so uh, fair and square. So my my hunch is that it's 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 probably too late to try and augment it. Mm. Uh, we just need to accept defeat, <laughs> like in yeah. chess or go. Now, because uh, to, uh, hold, uh, Texas Hold'em poker was not one of the first games that AI came into. It, it no, actually it was, was considered, very difficult. Like it was considered uh, difficult and very complex yeah. because it's it's you know it's the like a year or two ago that. The yeah. AI one, I think, so relatively recent. Yes. Yeah, if you compare to chess and Go, and yes, all of this. course, because chess is a game with uh, complete information or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. This is the, the the point is to have a game with incomplete information that I think is one of the main complexities here. And you you you're you're playing several hands. You're playing someone else's betting. Most profile. of the time, you don't get to see their cards. Exactly. So you observe their behavior, exactly. and only occasionally you see what that behavior was based on. Exactly. And good players can also change their behavior, so uh, they can play so-called meta game. Yeah, meta game. Yeah. So you can start playing very aggressively and bluff a lot and make the entire table believe that you are just an aggressive, crazy, crazy person. Yeah. And then when you do get a good hand, no one believes you, and they try to call their bluff, and that's, that's when, when you, you really cash in. Cash. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I'm sure that uh, uh, modern AI deep neural networks uh, uh, they'll get to that point when they just just you know touching base on on check sh- uh, or uh, yeah on, on chess as well and going back to Kasparov you know and, and the big moment in t- in 1997 you know when he lost against Deep Blue mm-hmm. the IBM supercomputer and 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 uh, are you are you familiar with chess as well, or do you do you know Casparo uh-huh. well, or is it? Well, I don't know him well. I no. know that he used to be the world champion. Uh, I don't remember if he was uh, number. Uh, he was a number one for like twenty years or something, or fifteen years for a long time at least, I think. Yeah. But but still, I, I still remember a, a quote that he said, and, and that was that even though he knew exactly how the AI or you know the the tree search algorithm that uh, the deep blue computer used to, to play chess. He knew exactly how that worked because he was very literate into how computer programming worked and how the uh, deep blue system were actually, you know, programmed, but still, you know, and, and he played very differently when he plays against humans, he play one way. And when he plays against, you know, a computer, he plays in a different way. And he knew exactly what the strategy would be for playing against deep blue, but he still lost. Mm. And I, he made this quote saying something like, um, I could feel it, I could smell it. It's a new kind of intelligence across the board. Uh, and that's like, even though it's a super simplistic, you know, program, it's not using machine learning, it's basically just symbolic kind of uh, hard-coded rules that, you know, make some kind of tree search into how to play chess. That kind of simple uh, program still had some kind of weird intelligence in some way. Mm. So even though it's simply uh, had a simple structure, it still produced some kind of 
new type of intelligence, as he said it, just because of the sheer power, mm-hmm. computer, computational yeah. power that it had. Do you think that will happen for AI as well? I mean, even if we take today, like GPT-3, it's just a super simple thing. Just predict the next word, but some, in some way, produce some new type of intelligence, even though it's very simplistic in its in It's its only simplistic origin. because we're used to doing it. Mm, okay, what just do you mean? Like, just like uh, computer vision. Because mm. for us, seeing things and being able to tell one thing from another, or telling the difference between a cat and a dog, is so natural mm. that we take it for granted. Right. But any any computer engineer would tell you that that's actually very, very difficult. Very hard, yeah. And predicting the next word in a sentence is also very, very difficult. Mm. It's uh, no. Uh, it's only trivial once you've solved it, <laughs> exactly. I suppose. But I guess today in AI you have you know just the scaling of the size of data that you actually train on, or the size of the model you use to train it, in some way, and, and then the the overall objective is very simple. But still, in some way, it seems to produce some, as uh, Kasparov said, you know, new type of intelligence mm. that is surprising in some way. It's like some kind of emergent property that emerged from some kind of simple rules that builds up some kind of still intelligence in some way. Our intelligence is 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 an emergence as well. Very good. It's well, just a bunch of cells. Exactly. We just have neurons with very simple rules that you know, guide them. And we've got lots of them. Yeah. And that seems to help. We have so many... Well said. We have so many good topics, but <laughs> let's, let's just do a, a, a wrap-up of... Um, from poker, if, if if you go a little bit higher above the, the key uh, different parts of the career, then we can come back to many interesting topics mm. here. So you played poker, and and then what are the? How would you lay out the main highlights? Of course, you've been working in data science in many many interesting places. So yeah, that th- that all happened before um, I came into data science, and I left Japan in twenty ten. Uh, Spent some time in Russia, but I wanted to go. Uh, I think I knew that I wanted to go abroad uh, again soon. And in 2012, I was lucky to land a job with Klarna, in Klarna which yes. wasn't easy. Uh, no, while I was in in in, in Russia, and uh, I couldn't really put online pork on my CV. <laughs> or maybe it was somewhere, but you probably close to the bottom. Or, yeah, a risk analyst but, there. But if you live in Stockholm, you know it's famous that Klarna had a, a very tough uh, screening. Uh, you know, the, to work at Klarna has always been a, a, a long process. We all know that. So They had quite a test. And I, I think that's what lets me land the job. Because most companies, they would go through a very traditional interview process. Yeah. And it would be difficult to even get that first interview. And yeah. then it would be very difficult to impress someone by being a Russian guy who's still in Russia and haven't got much of a career to uh, to to show for it, but with Klarna they had an online test, oh, uh, which I guess I passed uh, with aced. some success. So they had that uh, incentive to to fly me over and uh, well for in-person interviews. And, and maybe you need to clarify. So this is, if, if you know a little bit like this is, in, to me it's known that there's quite sharp tests that sort of weeds out if you're super smart and if you have the right aptitude. And then you did well on this, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of objective tests. Mm-hmm. 
And as you said, the least they can do is to weed out people who are not bothered. Mm. So not everyone even wants to spend time and effort on getting through the test. And a lot of people, um, well, I, I imagine a lot of people just fail. Mm. So because they shouldn't have applied for the job in, to begin yeah, with. Because exactly. it's very it's very easy to just do a mass email with your CV mm -hmm. and apply to whatever position you come across, whether you're a good match or not, whether you have the right skills or not. So even the simplest test will probably filter out like 95% of the candidates. Because mm. as soon as you have to do anything as a candidate, I think that create even the shortest barrier just weeds out so so many people because most people uh the sad truth is they, they don't want to do Listen. anything at all <laughs> but don't you think you can potentially lose a lot of like interesting candidates because they could be really really interested it's just that they they are um you know that they have okay position right now they're just you know not really looking but they could be an awesome candidate if they just you know had the yeah. So you you may need to use different approaches when hiring for senior versus yeah. junior positions. Right. Okay. If you're that hiring a for a junior position, good point. you probably yeah you, you assume that the person really wants that job and they yeah. have some time to spare. I think yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. It's a different. With senior people, you cannot make that assumption, but you can always give them more time. Um, that job at Arsenal is a good example. There was a take-home test. And I spent a few evenings just making sure that I do a good job because I wanted to uh, give it my best shot. And even though that I had a full-time job, which was uh, quite satisfying, probably even with the senior level positions, you want that that person to to enjoy uh, solving job-related challenges. Right. If they don't want to invest a couple of evenings to prove that they know what they're doing, yeah. Are they, are they motivated I mean, like, I, I think I think it's an interesting mm -hmm. uh, idea here that that um, we we all I mean, like, what is really important to succeed in any job? It's some sort of love for what you do and motivation for what you do, and uh, working in different ways. I mean, like different ways now: a junior test to a senior test, and you could have more time and do it mm -hmm. yourself. But uh, what it shows is that you're putting your passion, your heart into the effort and putting the effort in to do something. Um, I, I, I kind of understand that logic that you are coming with here. If you don't want to do it to get the job, you're probably not going to want to do it to keep the job. Uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. maybe. Mm, um, interesting. Uh, we, you know, we, we have, we can talk after, after work about different mm. profiles and what you need to do to get different jobs. But, uh, but so here you are and you, you did the test and you got into Klarna and was it a lot of interviews as well or how did it work? I did go through a few a few interviews, some of them are remote, some of them in person. And um, yeah, I, at the end of it all, I, I landed the job as a decision analyst. That wasn't the most data-driven job uh, in my career. I remember, it was 2012, mm -hmm. so not, not many companies. Not many companies w would be able to boast being truly data-driven as we expect these days. So it was a good stepping stone, but I don't think I was particularly fit for the job because it involved a lot of manual decision-making. Mm. But uh, I was already in Sweden. I, I've learned quite a bit from my co-workers, 
even in in the few months that I spent with Klarna. Uh, but it was clear that uh, I I had to move on. Uh, it, it wasn't a good fit. And um, I was very lucky that a relatively small gaming company named <laughs> King had an office next door. And actually the first position with them I, I applied for was in Malmö because I didn't even realize they had a, an office. office in Stockholm next door. <laughs> and then they told me and I realized, okay, I can literally come over because uh, they were in the same building as, as Klarna um, on uh, St. Eriksgotten. Yes. And uh, they also had a test. You, you could take it in person. Uh, you would only have a couple of hours. Uh, there was still a small company in, in the early 2013. So you were quite early into King in this case. If, if I had to find a job of data scientist with my skills, with the skills I had then, people would laugh at me. Because I learned about p-values and hypothesis <laughs> testing only after I submitted my first report on an A-B test. Yeah. Uh, my manager at the time, Magnus Korger, a true gentleman, he, he was very kind telling me about maybe needing to read up on those concepts. <laughs> and I was already on the job. So um, I was very lucky to get the position, a position of data scientist when all you needed was maybe a bit of experience with programming, some basic knowledge of SQL, and, and, and that was essentially it. Maybe some rudimentary knowledge of statistics. Because when I saw the position, I didn't even know what data scientist meant. Now, the, what year is this? Because early 2013, so it was just becoming a thing. Data yeah, and, and I, I remember you know, going back to starting up Data Innovation Summit in 2016. Mm. And in 2016, we were talking, what is the definition of data science? So now we're 2012-13, it is people are statisticians, pe people are mathematicians, data scientists. You know, that's I, ha I had to read the job description to understand what they <laughs> meant. And I thought, okay, this sounds, this looks fun. I would probably enjoy doing this. And uh, this is King is super early to define a data scientist and, and hire, you know, formally hire a data scientist. Yeah, that was probably one of the first positions in Stockholm that had that title. So I was quite lucky to sneak in mm. under the radar. And there were a lot of more experienced, uh, brilliant people to learn from. Mm -hmm. And I generally like to learn on the job. And I think most jobs, you learn so much more once you have a project. That's so true. To work so true. On. And we're soon get into, you know, what the data scientist really does, given your book, etc. <laughs> so let's try to avoid the question right now, even though let's, it's yeah, very let, tempting. Let, let's try to keep to the plan to do yep. a bit faster overview. Yes. And then we go to these topics with the book. Cool. So, so you you work with data science in in in, in King. Were you were you were you focusing on several different areas, or was it one main area of use? You know, type of you know use cases or applications that was your main topic, or many different ones in King. I've got to work on uh, on different things, varied things, uh, using different tools because the the industry was changing the available tools and technologies there. Uh, um, the whole field was rapidly evolving. Mm. And I would probably emphasize A-B test analysis because mm. we would run a lot of A-B tests in Candy Crush. I would mostly be focused on Candy Crush, but I have worked with other games as well. And it was quite a journey to go from 
very manual analysis of A-B tests when it would take probably a few days for a data scientist to analyze a single A-B test to what we had a few years later as a team effort, of course, a fully automated A-B test uh, tool with a dashboard and where you would not really need the data scientist at all. So a business person would be able to execute an A-B test and then see all the plots, all the metrics, all the KPIs on a day-to-day basis. So that was one uh, one uh, one massive progress, I would say, um, in the field of data science, or you can call it business intelligence. But and, and so we, from even this A/B testing f- that we all take, uh, like all the big, uh, we all take it for granted. If you're an e-business, that you do this and it's very automated. For the B two C companies, <coughs> B, uh, you know, direct to consumer of different kinds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool, and I'm. Tempted to ask more questions about this, but I think we should try to, you know, keep yeah. to the plan. Keep to the plan and come back. To, you mm. can ask the questions and then we contrast. Yes. Yeah. So I'll keep sh- quiet. Okay. Um, cool. Please. Good. 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 <laughs> okay. So and and um, so, how many years were you at Clor? Uh, sorry, at King all all, all up. Four years and four years. Mm. And what what was sort of you know what what was the, what were you doing in the you know how far had you taken it at the end sort of thing what was sort of if you think about you you, it, you were there quite early how would you define like you know what was the end game that you experienced in in in, um, in King sort of that you think that this is now we did this or we did automate you know the data we test and all this uh, was that the main or do you have any other things that we managed to build this stack or get this done. There were a lot of cool things being done at King uh, by a lot of brilliant people, and that automated A-B testing was one thing, and then we would do a lot of work around level optimization and automated level reports. Uh, you may know that in Candy Crush they would release a lot of new levels on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. And it was a famous level, right? The level 51 or something? Or which one so was maybe it? Maybe 65. 65, yeah. I think 65 was, was, was a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, explain for us who doesn't know this anecdote. I mean, you probably is the best one, right? I think it was, to put it simply, the, the hardest level in candy cars. For, and for, for, for the human race to fix, <laughs> to solve. It's, it's been made easy several times. So that tells you uh, how difficult it was. Um, and you could read a lot of stories on the internet about someone thinking they have passed the level and then they would notice one single tile of jelly still remaining and they were out of moves and they cried themselves to sleep. <laughs> so it was a cruel game. It's, it's, it's a cruel game. It, this is a cruel game. And the cruelest level is level 65. <laughs> uh, but I guess it was a big problem as well it, from a design perspective that if you can't really measure in advance, you know, how difficult the level is, it, it can be a big problem from a user experience point of view, right? That's a great question because this is where we started using AI. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing you can do before you release new levels is to give them to so-called playtesters. So actual human beings, they play through the levels and you can measure, let's say the average number of attempts right. that's required to uh, to pass a level. And then of course it's, it, it takes time, it's a bit slow. Uh, there is a lot of variance in how people tackle different levels. So that's definitely a process that could be automated. 
And uh, a few months before I left King, an AI team was created where people would create an AI that would be able to play Candy Crush and play it similar to to how a human would play it. Was it a reinforcement learning approach? or? I think they started with one approach and then they switched to neural net. Uh, neural nets. I, I wasn't uh, part okay. of the effort, so uh, I could just uh, look on in awe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think they uh, started reaping the benefits after I left King, mm-hmm. uh, so, so 2017. But if you have an AI that can play Candy Crush levels similar to a human, it makes measuring the expected difficulty of of the new levels very quickly with uh, right. higher accuracy. So you can save quite a lot of time and money and make fewer mistakes. Mm-hmm. Now, level, level 65 was a mistake, right? Uh, you shouldn't really have done was too, that too If I'm not mistaken, historically, that was, uh, in the original game, that was the last level. So there oh, was, was. There okay. was no point in making it too easy because <laughs> once you, you've completed it, you're done. Uh-huh, but then, of course, <coughs> as more levels were added, you mm-hmm. wouldn't want to keep everyone stuck at that level for yeah. weeks and months on end. Yeah. So then it would be made easier and easier. And a similar thing happened in 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 the sequel, Candy Crush Soda. Mm-hmm. If you if you if you plan to release launch the game with seventy five levels, you make the last level pretty Super much hard. impossible to beat because you don't want someone to complete the game and then just put it aside. Just wait for us to release new content. Uh, for, <laughs> for now, like this is where you live, mm-hmm. level seventy-five. Super exp- hard. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, it might have been even more impossible than uh, level sixty-five in the original Candy Crush. Interesting. And then, cool. and then, uh, how, what was the next step here? So, where did you when you what wh- where did you go after uh, King? And what what was the reason or opportunity that you took? I left King in 2017 uh, for a job with Kambi, a sports betting platform, I think uh, would be... You probably work with Daniel Tiedström. He was my hiring manager Ah. and he was uh, building out a data science team and I understand that he really wanted to have someone from King. I don't know if it was the prestige, (laughs) just his... uh, He thought Personal dream. No, he he knew King was good. Yeah, I, I suppose it was a stamp of approval. If you've spent a few years at King, probably you know a thing or two uh, about you, your job. Simply because you you had worked on data science topics since 2012, 13, mm. and which means that how many experienced people in data science do we have now in 17? I mean, like you have someone who has been there from, I think that's a good, very simple ana- you know, analysis. I think in those times, if, if you had a couple of years as a data scientist under your belt, you you were beginning to attract recruiters and headhunters. So that's fair enough. And um, I was beginning to feel in a bit of a rut at King because more experienced people were snatched up by other companies. And while I could share my knowledge and experience with my teammates, I didn't see many people around me from whom I could learn myself. And of course, more money. It's always a good motive. But then basically you spend um, time at the three Ks, the Klarna, King and Kambi. Yeah, that was a funny coincidence, yes. 
So how would you describe the differences, the main differences between the three, all kind of data native kind of companies? Well, Klarna wasn't data native when I was here. Right. Was, and fair enough, 2012. Yeah. Not, I don't think many companies were. Yeah. Um, so most of our processes were quite manual. And there was a database or two, and you could try and look at the data, but that was more of a hobby. Uh, do you do Erlang programming at that time as well? No, no, no. That that would be the software developers. I okay. was I wasn't a developer. I was a decision analyst, which is just oh. a fancy name for someone who looks at uh, transactions that look suspicious mm. and uh, is supposed to make a decision. Right. Essentially, do we loan money to this person or not? Mm. Can we trust mm. them with paying for this uh, flat screen TV? Mm. So is this more or less a credit underwriting uh, tasks within the, a, a B2C environment? Close enough. It, it must have been. And uh, I, di I didn't have any prior experience in the area. And when it comes to doing something repetitive, I'm, I'm not really your guy. It, it's probably not a good quality to have in a data scientist, if you think right. about it. But that's what was expected for that position. I mean, data scientist wants to automate things, right? So. Exactly. And I didn't know how to automate things or how to be a data scientist. And uh, there wasn't that kind of culture yet. Uh, so I think I was quite miserable. And I don't think I was one of the better performers on that job. But it did give me an opportunity to learn a bit of SQL. And actually, quite a few people moved from Klarna to King around that time. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I, I will get to work with some of the same people just uh, just next door. And at King, you learned a bit more about um, yeah, from people about statistics, p-values and whatnot, I guess. And, and uh, big data, Hadoop big data. and Hive. And yeah. uh, uh, I started uh, using R as well eventually when I realized that copy-pasting CC files into Excel and making a plot was too time-consuming. There were a lot of brilliant people to learn from, and that was still the most data-driven company I have ever worked for. So, um, and Kambi, what was the main learnings or personal development steps that you made there? I think working at Kambi really helped me understand that unless people want things, uh, there isn't that much you can do. So as a data scientist, unless there is someone with a pain that can be solved by using data, well, what are you going to do? So you mean people working in Cambi that had a pain with having to do a lot of manual work and in that way relieving it? Or you mean the users of Cambi, the betting people, or what do you mean? Uh, I mean other teams at Cambi. Right. So I think... Uh, 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 I ended up being, to a great extent, isolated from the rest of the company, and I couldn't really find anyone who really needed data science to begin with. You would have brilliant salespeople who would uh, sign on new uh, operators, we would call them, clients. You would have really good developers that would just work on features requested by the operators. You would have some uh, quantitative analysts would build those models to to actually price uh, different events and outcomes. And our small uh, data science team, uh, I worked with Marcin, uh, 
right. who you had on a few weeks back. And we would love to, to, to contribute as data scientists, but I think we couldn't really find a leverage point uh, at, at that time. Because Daniel Tisrium, who was our manager, he left shortly after I joined the company, which is fair enough. Uh, he, he had a better offer from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe another key person or two moved into new positions. And that umbilical cord that was supposed to mm-hmm. connect us to other business functions wasn't there anymore. But But this, I think, what we're talking about now is... Sometimes when we talk about we want to be successful and we want to do data science, we kind of forget that it all starts with, you know, can you even, is there a demand? Exactly. And I, I remember this all the way back uh, in when I was at Vattenfall and, and where when you want to start on a data science journey, you, you really need to... Um, you need to be really humble and honest to yourself. What is our real job now? Is it to solve this fancy stuff? No, we are here to build demand. Uh, they, they, we are here to educate the art of possible. I mean, like the, the, so the distance be, be, between the business people's understanding for what data can do for them uh, and connecting, you know, the, we used to call it the business to the analytics translation, so mm-hmm. to speak. and. And in, in, if you haven't done a lot of data science, you know, and you can now be a very data-driven company like Cambi, but you have these different functions. There are sales guys, as you say, and you know, you need to connect with them and they need to have a demand or you need to educate them even to create the demand. I think this is a, a really profound problem that uh, sometimes it seems like we, we forget. You can't really jump that step. What no, do you think? No, no. Uh- Yes, exactly. And I do spend some time uh, talking about it in my book. Yeah. Sometimes what happens, a company can hire a data scientist or several data scientists for the wrong reason. Because it's in vogue, it's what everyone does. Maybe because they want to impress the CEO or their investors. They just want to, to, to put something flashy. Uh, in a PowerPoint presentation saying that, yeah, we're data-driven, we're using AI, even <laughs> you are really not. And if there isn't a real demand, well, you talk about creating demand, but I think the, the, there need to be certain conditions where that can happen. Mm. Uh, as the saying goes, you can lead horse to water, but you won't be able to make it drink. Like if it doesn't want to drink, it won't drink. And uh, sometimes no one is actually interested in data science because people are just doing things their own way. There isn't any particular pain that they feel and that they need uh, solved potentially with data science. And then you just end up with a miserable person who sits there and they don't know what to do with themselves. Um, So I think the reason behind a company hiring data scientists, especially their first data scientists, is really important. Like, do you really need a data scientist? Like, why? Um, mm. Anyway, I think we're failing a bit on our goal here to <laughs> finish off the biography in, in like 
half an hour. Yeah, we're up to one hour now. We, we're up to so one hour now. To the last, I think. Yeah. So, but so here we were at Camby, and 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 you had some ups and downs, and and um, um, maybe one last question: What were the main type of uh, use cases that you you typically working on in, in data science in Camby? Well, one area where we tried to do some work was user segmentation. Mm. But then again, if you don't have a clear understanding of why you want to segment your users and how that's going to help you improve your core business functions, yeah. you can segment them whichever way you want. Because mm. just by putting them into numbered groups, you're not achieving much. So again, connecting that to a business function is business crucial. Problem. Yes, crucial. Uh, I did get to work on a, on a, on a predictive model for lower tier Norwegian football. That was fun because it's it's an area where you don't really need to outperform a human expert. You're hoping to just replace a human expert with some degree of success, so that you don't have to pay someone to to prize those uh, you know long tail events. Yeah. Um, so. So there were some learning opportunities and there were some uh, talented people to learn from, um, but I, I was really struggling to, to make an impact. But I left Kambi not in a really premeditated way. By chance, I, I, I saw that job ad at Arsenal and being a football fan, I thought, I, don't, I probably don't stand a chance, but I don't think I will be able to forgive myself if I, if I don't tie at least. So I applied and I had a take home test. <laughs> and right. and uh, you did it from Sweden as well? And yes, you could do it remotely and you would do a few interviews remotely and I was only flown in for probably my last interview on site. And that happened at the training ground. So that was an interesting experience in itself. Well, you're not brought in uh, into the training ground proper. You, uh, you, you would take, uh, you would do your interview in the so-called like, media building. So that's just close to the gate and uh, available for all kinds of visitors. But you, you could have a glimpse of what the place looks like. And of course, it's nothing like your normal office. No. Uh, and I, I, having been, uh, having worked in Sweden for so many years, I had um certain ideas about uh, the dress code. So I showed up in a t-shirt, in a hoodie. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think that's, uh, that was what they expected. Yeah, this is the dress code of the kings and the campies and the, and the Spotify's, but uh, not colorful socks. Uh, yes, uh, maybe some, put some pants on, <laughs> make an effort, but that's it. I, I remember people actually making fun of someone showing up uh, for an interview in a suit. Because mm. in a company like but King, that, that King, would be horrible. If you come in a suit to King, you would be a joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So people have certain expectations. It's a very different culture. Um, but at, and I thought, okay, this is a football club, so I imagine they probably don't wear suits, and and they weren't wearing suits themselves. But I think they expected me to make a bit of an effort and maybe at least dress in uh, <laughs> smart, casual, and. Uh, when I was already on the job, uh, they shared their impression with me. They said, like, when we saw you, we thought, okay, this is probably going to be either really good or really bad. <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out which. <laughs> and, uh, well, apparently, 
I, actually, they told me that they didn't get that many good candidates, which mm-hmm. surprised me because you would think it's an it's it's Arsenal and and uh, the salary range was quite decent, uh, very competitive. Uh, on, on, but what's on the, the your position? It was data scientist. Data scientist. The uniqueness of that position, that position was created from scratch. It was created within the so-called medical and high-performance department. Mm-hmm. Medical, I said? Medical and high-performance. Because mm-hmm. there were already people working in, in the areas traditionally associated with data analytics and football, such as tactical analysis and player recruitment, scouting. So that's what we know about football. But uh, there was a team of professionals, domain experts, such as uh, fitness coaches, sports scientists, physiotherapists, nutritionists, uh, psychologists, who are responsible uh, for uh, who are responsible for ke- keeping players fit and healthy, um, help them uh, come back from injuries. And they didn't have a data person, and they were collecting quite a bit of data. So they created that position, which I think was a brilliant decision on their side because it's not always obvious that we're missing a particular skill set. So I, I, I think that was uh, a moment of brilliance on their side, uh, even though I'm blowing my, my own trumpet at the moment. <laughs> but that's how it happened. And, and before we continue, uh, I would like to take a, a quick break. So maybe we, you, you can discuss amongst themselves and I'll be with you in a moment. Yeah, yes, perfect. So Go, for fine. Go, for Go for it. Go for it. And it's upstairs to the left or right. You know. Meanwhile, we have time for a commercial. <laughs> yes, okay, great. So this episode is sponsored by IBM. IBM helps you implement uh, your AI strategy and trustworthy AI. According to IBM, trustworthy AI has three um, ethical principles at its core. First, the purpose of AI is to augment human intelligence. Second, the data and insights belong to the creator, not IBM. And the third, that the new technology and AI system must be transparent and explain, explainable. You can learn more about IBM's principles for implementing trustworthy AI on www.ibm.com slash Watson slash trustworthy hyphen AI. And that will be it. Awesome. Awesome. I'm an explainable AI is certainly one of my favorite talks as well. And, uh, it could be fun to see if uh, Mikhail have any experience. Yeah, well, the, the, I mean, like the, one of the core, really cool things, uh, you know, is is actually you know, the, the King is very data driven, uh, even can be, and then going into Arsenal, and and uh, of course there is data in you know you know how to run the business, and here here you have the data for the fan base and all this, and for the betting purpose, and for the betting purpose. But here we're going really. But medical, I, the, you know, we are going, we are going high weird. performance working with the players. So he's working with the stars, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's fun to see how many, how many, apps, how many areas data driven, right? Yeah. And, 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 and of course now, where does it work? He works at the training ground, mm-hmm. uh, living, you know, north of London. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so very, very exciting. Now we, 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 used to, we were saying here, we, we broke for a commercial for IBM and now we're back. But we were saying now, of course, there, there are so many angles of data and data scientists in the whole business of, um, 
of Arsenal and you know and, and the, there's the obvious ones around the business the the players sorry the fans the, uh, you know this but here we are at the training ground and we are working with the operational performance of the real players so here we're working data science close to the real player to the you know organic Mm-hmm. Uh, part of uh, of the bis- the most organic part of the Arsenal business, if I put it like that. Well, they're the spearhead because whatever you do elsewhere, it's all about the result on the pitch. That depends on the eleven uh, players that are on the pitch, and uh, <clears throat> you can be a very successful club in a business sen- sense, but it will only take you so far. And especially a club with the history and tradition of Arsenal, you you want to be at the top, always competing for for the title. So that creates that ultimate goal uh, in, in in that line of work. So whatever your long term strategy is, you are always under pressure to win the next game. But uh, what was the problem description or job description for this job? Do you remember it? <laughs> I never remember the job description because quite often they are overly detailed, verbose. And um, again, I, I talk about it in my book. My, mm. Well, I don't want to diss anyone because I don't know who wrote that description. And maybe it wasn't the worst job description in the world, but generally... Job descriptions, they don't do a great job. How should a good job description look like? Well, for one, for one thing, it, it needs to be short. Mm-hmm. And honest, I guess, in some way. Why Hon- short? Why honest? Sorry, <laughs> I love it. Honest, short, to the point. Because quite often people talk at length about mm-hmm. how you're going to uh, define this or leverage that or contribute to or create a business value so they use vague descriptions whenever you write something that's supposed to be read by other people it's probably a good idea to write it as if you were writing it to your mom so okay. how, how would you phrase it if you if it, if it was your mom who was going to read it you'd probably try to make it as easy as possible for her to digest it you need to mention Hadoop as well, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can mention Hadoop. Uh, so, of course, you can expect people to be familiar with the with the buzzwords. Mm. Um, but I think specificity mm. is something that lacks pretty much everywhere. Or simplicity. Mm. Again, uh, my book read it. Uh, sim- simplicity is underrated. And I think many people shy away from simplicity. So not only not only don't they strive from simplicity, they actively actively reject it. Because simplicity is quite often associated with well well being simple. I love that term, and I think that's another T-shirt. You know, simplicity is underrated. Uh, I love that, and it also relates, you know, to quotes like uh, you know Einstein saying, you know, if um, you should keep things as simple as possible, but not simpler. <laughs> and I, well, I, I think I think there, there is another thing he said, or it could have been uh, Feynman. Mm. If you can't explain something simply, right. you don't understand it yourself. Exactly, and I that's think it's Einstein as well, actually. But yeah, I love that. 
But that, that is, and we all know this. That, that when we kind of know a subject, we fluff around mm. compared to yeah. when you when you have to when you know, start educating when you, you don't really understand it. No, uh, or you you kind of understand it, but then you okay. I'm supposed to educate someone now. I, I'm 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 going to be succinct. What this is all about? What's the core? Damn, much harder, much much harder. It's actually very hard to keep it simple when you decide to do it. Yeah, yeah, very true. I love that. And we need to move to to your book as well. But, but I think we should, do- we should kind of try to describe, you know, what really were the objectives still at the position that you had in Arsenal in the medical and high performance department. You know, what are you trying to do as a data scientist at that place? Keep so it succinct and simple. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. So if, as I said, at the end of the day, the success of, of the club is defined by the 11 people on the pitch, or 10 if Jaka has already got a red card. <laughs> and the, the coaches and the backroom staff are playing a support supporting well the manager of course defines uh, the starting lineup and su- substitutions so in a way he he plays an, a very important role sort of directly um but the the rest of the coaching staff and uh, the backroom staff they they're playing a supporting role to the players they cannot run onto the pitch and change the course of the game so they support the players and as a data scientist, I try and support the people supporting the players. So I'm at least twice removed from the action. So that makes it difficult to understand how much you bring to the table. And quite often, all you have to go on is uh, how much people need something, how much they like it when you deliver. Um, so it, it's all very subjective. But at the end of the day, if people feel good using what you have created for them, probably you're doing something right. So what can you provide for them? I mean, if they need something and they want to feel good, Mm. what can you provide to make them do feel good? So firstly, you can uh, make it easy for them to access data in, Mm. in, in a digestible, consumable form. Yeah. So instead of raw numbers, you can have a color-coded bar chart. Right. That already that already goes a long way. Secondly, you can save that time. So instead of uh, downloading data, copy-pasting it, um, mm, uh, manual data entry, and all those little things that can maybe take up to half an hour, an hour every day, if, uh, as a data scientist, you hope to be uh, like a decent software engineer. Obviously, you wouldn't work as a software developer, but you can put together a script. So if you can automate that process, you can save people's time. Mm -hmm. And you can put a price tag on that. Because, well, you know their salary. (laughs) So you save 10% of their time. You save, uh, well, not only do you save money, but you also make, hopefully, you make people happy because you take away the most mundane part of their job. And high uh, performance as well. Yeah, yeah. If, 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 if they're a sports scientist or, or a physiotherapist, you want them to focus on sports science and physiotherapy. Not can, on you, f- can you give an example of a graph or some kind of visualization that 
you as a data scientist can provide? Is it for the players? Is it for the physiotherapists? Or what kind of graphs? Can you give some example, perhaps? We have a lot of different data sources, and one of the most important ones is how much players do in in, in training uh, sessions. Okay, yes. There are literally dozens, if not hundreds, of different metrics you can look at, but probably you focus on, 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 on a handful of key metrics. Right. And then the least you can do is just to monitor how much each player does day in, day out. And how do you monitor that? Do you have people actually encoding that data, or do, can you use AI to just use cameras or some sensors to do that? Or In the training session, players were... GPS units. How they do? Mm. And how tight monitors. So you actually get uh, very accurate, oh, very objective nice. information of the distance, acceleration, deceleration, heart rate. So you can learn. You can learn a lot about um, their training workload. Some teams right. wear those GPS units in games as well. Right. Uh, but not Arsenal. Mm-hmm. You, you can actually see it if if you look closely. Uh, Sometimes you can see a little bulge yes. just uh, behind a player's or a referee's neck because referees in the Premier League, they also wear GPS units. All right. And just if you can present that data in a convenient way to the coaching uh, staff, to the backroom staff, that helps them a lot because they don't need to rely on their intuition. Okay, mm. this player looks tired or that looks like a high-intensity session. Right. And quite often they know what numbers they want to hit. And of course, by providing that information, uh, you, you help them get as close as, as, as possible to, to their goal. So you can, in some way, monitor the fitness level in some way of the players and see if someone is perhaps you know, having a downwards trend. You can see that and help the managers in that way. Or you can al- you can also run all kinds of tests on 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 a football player using uh, uh, force platforms, or okay. basically dynamometers, uh, to measure the strength of different muscles or mm. the height of their vertical jump and things like that. Mm. And of course, then it makes sense to compare them to their uh, uh, rolling average or something right. like that. Especially when they're recovering from a from a game or from an injury, you want to say, okay, are you at the at your normal level, right. or maybe there is a long term downward on or upward trend. Yeah. For example, if I'm a strength and conditioning coach and I'm working with a player trying to make them stronger, I probably want to measure that because if I cannot measure that, how do I even know that the program is working? Hmm. Interesting. So so. I mean, like w- one of the key things that I think is very important, interesting here is also if, if I compare to a, a company like King, I mean, like we talked about this before, Mikhail, like the, then you have very concrete metrics that you want to measure and all that. And here we, here we now need to find the other metrics that is now performance metrics. And, and maybe a long story short here is like this very interesting because we have the ultimate metric, I guess you, you, you explained it. It's like to winning the championship. So mm-hmm. that's the number one, you know, if the company, if the club 
wins mm. the, the Champions League or, or the Championship. That determines a lot. If you mm. if you win the Championship, then you can go into Champions League. You get more money, all this prestige. And then you go down to winning the game. Mm. And now from winning the game, we go into, you know, you can me- measure and analyze the stats and performance of the game. And now we get, and then you get into the indirect metrics or, you know, the organic metrics. What performance metrics or what fitness or health metrics of a player do we want to work on in order to maximize our chances to, uh, so I think this, this, this whole, uh, I think maybe you can summarize it better than I did, but you know, how to think about metrics in, 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 in this and how, how, how you've been thinking about that could be very interesting to explore a little bit. You did a good job explaining it. But just to reiterate, the most important metrics are there for everyone to see. Uh, your position in the league table at the end of the season, that's what it's all about. And then, of course, with every game, uh, did you win? Did you draw the game? Did you lose? Did you get the three points or the one point? And that, of course, is determined by the player's performance that also is determined by their position because they also want to win the game. Mm. And there is a strong element of luck in it. Right. When, uh, when the difference between the two teams isn't that obvious, the game is often decided by maybe oh, wow. one or two individual events. You take a shot, it hits the goalpost, two inches to the right, you would have won the game. What do you think about that? You know, and to be honest, you know, I'm not a sports person at all. I did play some football uh, during my younger years, but I do find it a bit annoying that you know random luck has such a big role to play uh, in a the, soccer. The role is the, the what the ball is round. That's the beauty of the what, game. What do you think about that? Do you think that's annoying, or do you think that's one of the beauties of the game that luck has such a big play? Well, without that randomness, I don't think we would have football. If the better team always won, mm. they wouldn't need to play. Because mm. you would just say, okay, you are the strongest team. Here's your cup. Here's your medal. <laughs> uh, what do we do now? Mm. I fully agree with what you said now. Because that's excitement. And it's the underdog f- from under all odds can win. I mean, like, right now, Arsenal is not as the highest performance. I mean, like you would argue maybe City or Chelsea. I don't know who's going to, who is the favorites in the betting uh, this year? Well, it's Manchester City at the City, moment. City at the moment, right? <laughs> and uh, wh- wh- where, where does the betting companies place Arsenal right now in the league? Third or fourth? Or Well, we're hoping to finish fourth. I think uh, out of three teams, Arsenal, Tottenham uh, and uh, Manchester United, we're the favorites to finish fourth behind Chelsea, Liverpool and Manchester City. Yeah. This is tough, right? So that's, that's, that's the, so, so Premier League right now is super exciting because you have, okay, you have a couple of teams who on the paper, mm. on paper, one, two, three, right? If you look at the, the budgets, these, these teams have, what type of profiles, I mean, like, I'm not the expert. My 12 year old who plays FIFA, he's the real mathematician. He knows all the stats uh, on this. But, but I find this so exciting now because in this league now, you, you, you're naming four teams who are really competing for fourth place according to math and statistics here. Um, 
Yes, and uh, you would think that why why are you even bothered about finishing fourth? Because in any other sport, you would be off the podium. No one cares. You are essentially a loser. But in case of the Premier League, which is so competitive, and the top four teams, they get to play in the Champions League. Which is huge. So finishing fourth is almost as good as maybe winning uh, the title in a less competitive league. Yes. Um, and uh, if you follow, if you have followed Arsenal, we haven't finished fourth for a few years. Uh, uh, since I joined the club, I, I, I've never been in the Champions League, so I'm quite excited about that possibility. Mm, we should really move into your book as well, and I think we should mm. do that. But before we do, some perhaps la- final remark about Arsenal as well. Uh, can you mention some upcoming exciting work that you're doing, some projects, something that you can mention that will you're excited about working with in Arsenal? Well, we are working on a couple of research papers oh, you are? that will probably cool. be at some point published. Yeah? But, uh, I don't oh, think please. I'm in a position to, to disclose them before <laughs> they are published. Some area at least. Or so. Can you mention something about them? or? Without disclosing any results or... Well, we're trying to look at the trends in the Premier League because it is getting more and more physically intense, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is probably one of the reasons why people call it the the best league in the world. And many players who come to the Premier League from other leagues Mm -hmm. uh, have a hard time adjusting because the demands... You need to be a real athlete to be able to sustain that kind of intensity. And if you look at Premier League clubs uh, competing in Europe, uh, quite often you'll see that uh, it it starts to show in the second half. Because teams that are not used to that intensity, they just start lagging. And another thing we're going to look at is uh, the link between, to put it simply, running and winning. Because some people believe that yeah, you run more, you win more. So you mean running as in the players on the field? Players on the have, field. If you have the stamina, if you can yeah. run with, with, with not getting tired. And of course, it's uh, so much more complicated, but you need to start somewhere. Yeah. So yes. we are trying to do some uh, uh, old school research. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to try to publish it as well? or, or it's Well, uh, that, that's all being done as part of a PhD. So uh, ah, it, it should be published at some point, but uh, yeah, I'm... So you have a PhD student in Arsenal as well, or is it...? <laughs> well, not really, because you, you can do a PhD on the job, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's not my PhD. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, 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 I'm providing some data support, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, some statistics, uh, some statistical diligence behind it. Um, so maybe you, well, I'm not sure if you, if you follow the, uh, that kind of, uh, material on Twitter, but I'm sure in due time it will be announced when, when it's mm-hmm. ready. Because you know, uh, publishing a research paper is, is, a, a, is a long process. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of back and forth. Very cool to hear, I must say. So yeah. And, um, but I, I think we can, we can circle back to different dimensions and aspects of Arsenal and Cambia and stuff, but I think. Tell me the whole background about writing a book. How did that come about? And when did you do start that idea? Uh, it's, it's not a very long story. I just got an email from a publisher saying, do you want to write a book about data science? Oh, that was it. I don't know how they found me. 
I don't know why they decided that I could be uh, a good candidate for writing because I hadn't written anything. Uh, I hadn't even had a blog, something like that. So it was out of the blue and I thought, okay, this kind of opportunity doesn't come along too often. I'll give it a go. And when, yeah. when was this? It was just before the pandemic and the lockdowns. So uh, if there is a silver lining to all the lockdowns, it was that I had a lot of time on my hands. Uh, sitting at home. So it, it was a good time to write a book, uh, coincidentally. And I showed them a sample chapter based on a, one of my conference talks, and they liked it. I said, yeah, I'm going to keep it broad. It's not going to be a textbook. I'm not going to focus on any particular technology. It's basically going to be a long rant in the book format about <laughs> data science. They like the idea. Uh, it took me about a year, I think, to write it. I had uh, support from uh, from a reviewer or two and the editor. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we, we, we pushed it through. I think the book sold um, about 250 copies in the first two months, which I think is okay for, for a niche book. Because it's not the next Harry Potter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a book about data science, but I think whether you're an analyst, a data scientist, or someone who uses the work of uh, data people or manages data people, it can be interesting to, to all kinds of people. So as long as you hear the word data and it piques your interest, uh, you may get something out of this book. How did you manage to get the self-discipline to actually write uh, in the book? Did you like take a couple of uh, some hour per day or per week, or how did you master that? It was a struggle. Uh, uh, trying to write something regularly was a key. Just yeah. as you said, you don't want to take a long break. Um, I usually think better on my feet when I go out for a walk. So I would try and maybe jot some ideas down and then come home and. Uh, expand on them. Mm. Um, quite often you get inspiration from reading other people. Maybe it's a long read, maybe just it's a Twitter post. Uh, it can, uh, quite often when you read something, you get more value from um, the thoughts that they provoke in your head rather than from, uh, from, from the actual text. So you just start daydreaming and then uh, you get new ideas yourself. Interesting. Cool. And if we go through some of the chapters you have as well. <clears throat> yeah. And, and the title. Yeah. We should probably talk love. about that. I love the title as well. Data science without makeup. How do you come up with the title? The fundamental idea behind the book is that there is a lot of hype around data science and it's not always unjustified. So there is a lot to be excited when it comes to data science, machine learning, artificial intelligence. But you probably know that pretty well that there are a lot of people who just talk the talk, but they don't know really what okay. they're talking about. And Absolutely. there are a lot of buzzwords, um, just a lot of misinformation and uh, delusion around data science and artificial intelligence. and. Uh, I just wanted to write something a bit more pragmatic, much more skeptical, grumpy, <laughs> sour and bitter. And uh, one of the lines uh, at the beginning of the book was, yeah, I'm going to write about data science as it is, warts and all. Mm. And from there you get to data science without makeup. Because, uh, yeah, that's, that's how we want to show it. So 
I love it. I really love the title. And I think the first part is called The Ugly Truth. Uh, and you speak about, you know, what really data science is. Uh, do you have a preferred definition of what data science is? So for the purposes of my book, it wasn't that important. So whatever you do with data, if you call it business intelligence, data analysis, data science, uh, probably the book is going to be relevant to it. It's, it may be less relevant when it comes to machine learning and artificial intelligence because it's okay. a very specific subfield of data science. But otherwise, as long as you write code, do something with data, work with stakeholders, probably there will be some bits of the book that will uh, that will make you think or that, uh, maybe something that you will agree or disagree with, but you're not going to be left Untouched. Uh, indifferent. <laughs> um, and of course, you start uh, with definitions just to get it out of the way. But I, don't, I didn't want to dwell on what data science means. So a very quick introduction. So this is what we're talking about. Doesn't have to be very specific. Call it what you like. But we probably, we probably all share some intuitive understanding of what data science is. Uh, so this is not a dictionary. And then I try to quickly go into the topic of why it is harder than many people realize and how our brain isn't particularly suited. So uh, why is it hard? Well, I think I, I, I identify a few root causes and one of them, which I, uh, I like uh, a lot uh, myself, is that quite often you don't get a second chance. You don't get a chance to get it right once you've got it wrong. And uh, one example I, I use in my book is the analysis of an A-B test. Mm -hmm. So you have all your numbers, uh, you make a nice plot, uh, you show the difference between the test groups, everyone is happy, and then you implement the solution that showed better results in the A-B test, and, and then you can uh, follow the business KPIs afterwards, and it all looks fine. And then the twist, uh, doing the analysis, you misplace the columns. So you mistook group A for group B and uh, vice versa. So actually you made things worse inadvertently. But unless someone verifies your work, ideally independently, uh, so that, that they don't just follow in your footsteps, no one is going to discover that. The end users, if it's a mobile game, the end users are not going to discover it. They don't know that they are uh, spending 1% less on average. So it's hard because it's so easy to make mistakes and it's really hard for people to discover it in some way? It's easy to make mistakes because data science quite often involves a lot of sequential steps. Mm -hmm. And if you make a mistake at one step, it just ruins the whole thing, right. uh, useless or even harmful. And then more often than not, there isn't anyone to help you catch that mistake. Right. And I found a lot of mistakes in my own work and sometimes really embarrassing. Yeah. And I know that these are only the mistakes that I have found. Exactly. And I have no idea how many, many mistakes I, I haven't. Sometimes I compare it to like writing code and, and you can have code reviews and, and they can, you know, have some procedure for trying to you know, do some kind of quality assurance of the code. But how do you do that for data? Right. Uh, uh, one uh, pull-out quote in the book is that code review doesn't work for data science because exactly. your yes, code can be perfect. Yes. It can be immaculate. It can be brilliant. 
but there can still be a mistake that mm. just produces the wrong result. A mistake from a data science point of view, so to speak. Uh, exactly. Uh, maybe in your reasoning, maybe in uh, your interpretation of the data, maybe you just, maybe you looked at the column name and you made an assumption without even thinking about it, but that actually, that column actually contains something different. Mm. And um, as a data scientist, quite often the end product of your labors is a number. And the number cannot be broken. As a software developer, you write your code. If it doesn't compile or it doesn't work or it looks weird on the screen, you know that something is wrong. If you don't catch it, if the tester doesn't catch it, uh, well, if then the users don't catch it, probably it doesn't matter. But do if you it think matters, there's any you know improvement in the future for actually how to do tests or how to do reviewing from a data point of view that could improve the situation? Well, as different steps in the process get automated. So you build automated pipelines, uh, for example, uh, the way we automated the analysis of A-B tests at King. Because when you automate something, you just need to double check everything once, and yeah. then you know it works. So if one thing breaks, everything breaks in that sense. Yeah, that's one of the benefits of automation, because yes. if, if an automated process breaks down, usually it does it in a very ugly, very obvious way. Yeah rather than when point. a human makes a mistake. Um, so uh, uh, unlike software development, where you usually see the consequences of a bug, and if there aren't any consequences, maybe it doesn't matter. In data science, you get a number, it's five. It doesn't look broken. You don't get a stack trace from that, right? No, like, all, all numbers are, are valid, fundamentally speaking. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. And, you know, we've spoken a lot about before with Jan Bosch, et cetera, about the difference between software engineering and AI engineering. And doing software engineering when it comes to using data and AI is very different because the tooling around it and all the best practices that you have for doing software engineering is really good. But when it comes to data and AI engineering, you don't have the same level of quality when it comes to the tooling around it. Would you agree? Yeah, I think the best practices in data science, again, they're lagging behind. It's a newer field. Mm. It's a bit messier. Uh, everyone is doing their own thing. Mm. People are still debating what data science is. Mm -hmm. So that shows you something. No one is debating what software development is. Uh, and if you think about it, uh, software development has been around for decades now. Yeah. And when it comes to data science, we, we were talking about years. We, we like, what... what like you have been working in the field of AI and as a researcher, but when, when did you call yourself a data scientist the first time, Anders? You remember? I don't know. I think I was more an AI person in the beginning rather from, than data scientist. Exactly. Maybe you shied away from the definition. I mean, like, um, yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, uh, but is this relevant? I mean, like this is maybe a quite important topic because Okay, we all were data scientists in 2012, 13, 14, 15. And, and now I think we all already now start to think about, okay, are you working with advanced analytics? Are you working with operational AI or recommender systems? Way more software engineering oriented than, than BI oriented. So already now is starting to, I don't know. Yeah, it's a tough thing. Um, given that the time is flying away, I, I'd just love to, to take the next chapter in your book, mm. which uh, is a title of the section which I really love. And um, but let, I, I would like to hear your thoughts about this. So you say the human brain sucks. What do you mean with that? 
Well, it sucks in the context of data science mm-hmm. because <clears throat> just like the rest of our body, the human brain has evolved uh, in a very different environment, what you would call the ancestral environment. What, what you would the call ancestral it? environment. Ancestral. Ancestral. Yeah. And uh, that evolution took place over the course of, well, thousands, maybe millions of years, depending on where you start counting. And they, well, data science is a few years old. Mm. And computer technology is decades old. Uh, well, industrial revolution happened just a couple of centuries ago. So we were not really designed, so to speak, to, to work with things like data and computers and numbers. Uh, we're very good at surviving in small hunter-gatherer times. Like we know, we, we, we are very good at detecting cheating, for example, or when we're being treated unfairly, or we know how important uh, social status is. But what we didn't need for survival was to be particularly good at rational thinking or to take into account all the available evidence and weighing it with high precision or... Uh, even doing um, calculations, uh, calculations in, in, in our head, because that, that stuff wasn't important. Sporting a, ti- a tiger was important. I mean, I love that. And I think, you know, especially saying that the human brain is actually really bad at many things, mm. I think is something that people don't say enough. We always say, you know, AI should be, as, you know, you will level type of intelligence, but I think that's a really wrong way to go for it. Uh, and I, I, I like what you said as well, you know, AI can be really good at going through data, mm. going through large amount of data, but it does it rather superficially, but still it can do that much more efficiently than human brain ever can. Like going through like hours of videos or thousands of pages of text, but then human brain has something else that it's good at. I mean, of course, you, human brain is good at some things, not everything, but some things. And these things can be potentially then to put things in a context and do more of a deep analysis in a way that AI of today is unable to do. Would you agree? Well, of course, there are still a lot of things where we can outperform AI, or we cannot even start training an AI to do that kind of job. Mm-hmm. And we, we probably don't even realize w- what particular jobs they are. And uh, the human brain is is brilliant uh, at certain tasks, yeah, like pattern exactly. matching or uh, the social dynamics. We're, we're brilliant at it, but then it's usually something very different from data science. We're still very good at the social dynamics in the office. We know uh, whom to suck up to. We know who the alpha male is in the room. We can sense it. We we don't even need to think about it. So we were brilliant at doing things that we don't even realize we're doing. Mm. We're very good at self-deception. And by definition, we, we don't dwell on it. We don't think too much about how we deceive ourselves to better deceive others. Mm. So we can play all that human stuff, all that sort of biological, sociological stuff. Um, and then data science becomes an afterthought, really. Mm. Um, let me just put one thought through your head and, and, and just trying to at least define, you know, what are differences between AI 
of today, or data science and the human brain. And let me start a bit, you know, with my, some of my at least favorite things to to differentiate the two. One is the generality. So, of course, the human brain can do many tasks, and, and normally the AI of, t- of today, at least, is very like narrow in that sense, and, and that's why we have narrow AI and not really general AI of today. I think that's an easy one to say, right? Reasoning, I would say, another one. So, high-level reasoning is something the human brain is really good at, but we don't really have good abilities for that in AI today. I would argue. Also, I would say that having like a world model, some kind of state that you work with um, that is being updated online. You know, that mm. human brain is constantly being updated as soon as you get something uh, perceived through your senses. But the AI of today is usually trained in a batch mode. So you get some kind of data set, you train mm. it, and then you use it. Mm. And it's not really done in an online, online fashion, uh, unless in some exceptions, but still. And then you have plasticity that the human brain can really change the architecture of the brain in a way. Mm. If you get a stroke or something, they can rewire the brain. And if you have to do that with AI or neural networks of today, you really have to manually change things and, and hard code the, the changes. For now. Yeah, for now. Mm. There, there, that's a number of, of, of differences. Would you, do you think, would you agree with those or what other kind of main differences would you say there are between the human brain and data science or AI of today? You've listed quite a few points where we can still take inspiration from the human brain mm-hmm. and try and replicate uh, those uh, mechanics in, uh, in AI. Because mm-hmm. uh, as neural nets originally, they were based essentially on the architecture of human brain, on, right. on, on neurons. All these things that you've mentioned we can try and reproduce artificially. We don't always have to. No, we, we didn't. Perhaps we shouldn't even do that. Yeah, we didn't need to base airplanes on birds. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. One of my favorite metaphors as well. Yeah. <laughs> Please elaborate on that because I, th- I think that's a, such a good metaphor. Can you just, what do you mean with saying that we don't have to, uh, you know, do flying in, in a way that birds do? If the nature solved a particular problem in a certain way, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that we need to keep solving it in the same way. Mm. So if the birds, let's say, learn to fly by flapping their wings, mm. it doesn't mean that our planes have to flap their wings. Because yeah. we discover the fundamental laws of nature and then we can design something different from right. first principles. Yes. Oh. Well said. Super, and the first principles is one of those fundamental favorite uh, T-shirts, uh, mm. you know, that mm. we are, we, we think a lot around and we have had this conversation going back and also, you know, Elon Musk being a hero for bringing it up all the time. But first principles is core, I think, in order to better understand how we use data and AI in relation to business, whatever we're doing. Mm. Uh, Would you agree? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, it's a great idea. And it's probably something that's easier to talk about than to, to implement in practice. But uh, it's, it's something to strive for. Exactly. I should have a vision at least. Mm. See what happens. Okay, so this, the other parts of the book, you have a, like a, a part of uh, the new hope as well. So mm. going a bit more pessimistic after saying that the human brain sucks, what do you think the new hope would be for data science? 
Well, as you can see, the book essentially consists of three parts. So one is the ugly truth, where I talk about how things are difficult and our brain sucks. So it's all uh, doom and gloom. And the second part, uh, the new a new hope, focuses on best practices that can help us, if not to get things right, but to at least get them less wrong. <laughs> and the third part is called people, people, people. So it's all about because um, in any line of business, it boils down to people. Mm. And uh, I had a, an interesting discussion with Daniel Tidstrom uh, mm -hmm. just, uh, uh, when was it, yesterday, that at the end of the day, it all boils down to who tells whom what to do. So we can talk about different uh, organizational charts and hierarchies and business processes, but if you think uh, about it hard and long, on the fundam fundamental level, it's person A going to person B and telling them what to do. And maybe they do it, maybe they don't, but uh, that's it. Everything else is just fancy jargon around it. Mm -hmm. And what's your point? I mean, like, so, so getting the, the key topic here is the team and who leads the team and what is the idea of why we're doing things? Well, some um, topics are, uh, I talk about in the book is hiring a data scientist. Because uh, that sounds important, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, especially if you hire your first data scientist. Uh, if, you, if you don't get it right, you're in trouble and you may lose a lot of time and money and well, you may lose people who, who may just leave as a result or you may uh, get completely disenchanted uh, in data science because, okay, it doesn't work. No, it does work. You just hired the, the wrong person or that person didn't know what to do or the communication wasn't great. And um, I try to talk about data scientists from a more human perspective. Because quite often data scientists get classified in terms of uh, what kind of problems they work on or what background they come from. What coding they have done, what statistical methods. They Their tech stack. The tech and stack. Uh, in, in my book, I focus on what motivates them. Because some, some of them can be motivated by uh, career. Some can be motivated by using uh, the newest, the fanciest technology. With nothing wrong with that, but uh, it's a different type of person. Mm -hmm. Some of them just want to get things done. Uh, not the worst quality to have in a data scientist. And uh, yeah, I think I identify maybe uh, five or six types. And I don't think uh, that type of classification is often talked about. Mm -hmm. But it's quite important. What Because based on what motivates a data scientist, what motivates a data scientist can, to a great extent, define what they're going to do. Mm. And how they're going to succeed with different types of problems or tackling how yeah. you're going to tackle the problem. And for different organizations in different stages. Uh, this becomes critical to understand. Uh, you, sorry, you, I have to take a technical break here. I'm sorry to bail out in, in the last part here, but I'll be right back. <laughs> well, we continue. Con continue the... So this is sometimes very... Sounds, I mean, like... To get this time, you know, to get this matching, right? I mean, a, a different organization 
at a different point in its uh, evolution may need different types of data scientists. With different types of motivations. With different types of motivations. Because if you are uh, an AI startup, you probably want to have someone who is interested in new technology and stays at the bleeding edge of all things AI. Mm. But if you are an old-fashioned company who just want to start doing some kind of business intelligence just to get the hang of what's happening, how do we collect data, how do we present it to decision makers, sort of the, the meat and potatoes of data science, the business intelligence, you may not want that nerdy type of a data scientist because they'll just get bored and they'll probably try to do something that gives them a chance to use the fancy stuff the machine learning, the uh, deep neural nets, and uh, it may be a mismatch. Maybe you just want someone who is motivated by getting things done and uh, helping uh, business. business people so they don't care. what uh, They will use Excel. They don't mind as long as they feel useful. And and maybe this is the topic here, like uh, I was referring to the topic, you need to truly know where you are and if, if, if you're to, at, at the place where there's no demand, and, and I use the word create demand, mm. but maybe you, uh, what I, if, if I use another word, is like if the people, everybody will need data. Mm. You know, even e- 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 if you have the least data mature company in the world, mm. you will need data. But you don't need AI. You don't need the fancy stuff. You need to understand what's in tune with this company culture right now, mm. what will help their business where they're at right now? And if I'm a, if, okay, so I, I take the example of a sales leader. Mm. The sales leader doesn't care about AI, but he will for sure care about who is his best salesperson. And he wants to, he will care about what makes the difference between his best or worst salesperson. So what will he talk about? What, he, what does he need in, you know, and there you go, right? So I think this is key, right? The matching with the culture and the state of mm. affairs, the state of mind of the company is key in choosing, as you highlight. Yeah, if you need a hammer, maybe don't use a calculator. Exactly. You it, could, but you'd be better off with a hammer and the calculator will remain undamaged. Let me flip it then. And then we get into and we say, oh, but you can do so much more. Come on, you can be more data literate. You can really develop this. Don't you think we should educate the sales guy to want the calculator? Or, you know, because how reactive and how proactive should we be to trying to change status quo? Change takes time. Yes. And um, people mostly dislike change and for a good reason. Because, uh, well, it's, it's a challenge. Mm. Do you think that's a personal trait or something in, in humanity that really makes people don't like change? Or wh- why do you think that is? Some people are more adventurous. Mm. And quite often those people are young males. And it's mm. probably a good evolutionary reason for them to be less risk averse. Right. Um, well, that's why they fight in the wars, essentially. It's just older men sending younger men in battle because no one cares about younger males there, dime a dozen. Mm. Well, <laughs> that's going to be dark very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry about that. Um, 
Yeah, but yes, uh, as a data scientist, of course, that kind of data evangelism exactly. probably falls into your lap. But there is place and time for everything. And the best way to educate people and to convince people is to give them a result. If, if you save them time using automation or if you help them perform better, better using data, they will not need more convincing. Just like with a football player, if you help them get stronger and they see that they perform better, they're harder to move off the ball. Maybe they can hit the ball harder. You don't need to convince them that getting stronger is good. But this is super important now Mm. to to unpack what we talk about here because sometimes, I think this is the point you're trying to make, there is a disconnect. Oh, we really want to help the traditional sales leader Mm. with AI. Mm. Now, here the distance is too far away. So the point is this, when you are trying to push or sell this to him, and you're trying to make him make this huge leap, he will not feel the benefit. But if you're more in tune with the data literacy of your company or, or, you know, your stakeholder, and then you need to now be, now you need to be in tune and I can do this, but actually what he will be benefiting from that he can understand. And so it really will sell him. It's maybe a very small step. I will automate the data collection for him because this is a bitch. And then he will, you're not, you're not going to need to convince him. And now you're moving the goalpost. And now he, what else can you do? What else can you do? Am I summarizing your argument? You're making a great point because unless that sales manager is a true visionary, they, for them, that sort of, uh, inference length is going to be too much. They cannot just uh, go through those reasoning steps and see that, okay, this is the bright future. This is where we're going. Uh, so they may be a more practical person who thinks about tomorrow. Mm. Like I just need to meet my uh, quarter exactly uh, this month. So uh, again, just like in football, uh, if someone is focused on winning the next game, you probably don't want to try and sell them a six month long project. And personally, I try to employ the strategy of uh, quick wins. Just deliver something quickly, something, something that, and you may be, and actually you shouldn't be so arrogant as to assume that you know what's going to bring the most value. So maybe you'll do something that looks very simple, very unsexy from the data science point of view, that doesn't use any fancy technology. Maybe you're just replacing a spreadsheet with uh, with the little dashboard. Then see what happens. So you'll probably deliver more value than you expect, and you'll lay down the foundation for sexier, more sophisticated stuff. And you take it one step at a time. But, and there's a profound uh, reasoning around this, because nothing that you don't adopt mm. and use creates value. Mm. So it, it, the dashboard doesn't create value. Mm. It's whatever the sales manager or the football coach can use mm. that changes the way he behaves or the decisions he makes. That's the value, right? Yes. One, one point I argue in my book is that unless data science is the product itself, 
for example, a recommendation engine, mm -hmm. unless it's the product itself, the ultimate job of data science is to change opinions. Mm. And I use a controversial word change because it sounds like, okay, shouldn't it just inform opinions rather than necessarily change them? But if you think about it, if you don't change anyone's opinion, then you need it. Then, yeah, if, if you run a bunch of A-B tests and you always confirm what people were already thinking, what's the point? That's another t-shirt, I think, you know, <laughs> data should change opinions, otherwise it's useless in some way. Actually, data should change opinions to be useful, or it has mm. to have the power. If because if, 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 as you said it, A-B testing, confirming what you already have, was, was planning to do, what's the point? To change anything at all, you need to change at least one person's opinion. Mm. Cool. And... Um, I think, you know, what you said also about spreadsheets and finding something that works, you know, it's also related to the concept of failing fast and mm. um, what we mean with that. And what Tony Lake said, you know, at, at one point was that uh, we are going to be the company that fails the fastest. And, and uh, that may sound strange, but if you think about it, it's really, if you don't try, you know, 10 different things and you do, do not know until you try to be their own data that it actually will work, you will fail. And you need to be able to fail fast on the things that doesn't work. So it's better to try 10 different things and fail quickly on the things that doesn't work to find the one that do work. Would well, you agree? You definitely don't want to fail slow. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably that, the worst thing you horrible. can do. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the incremental development that so many, I think, companies get stuck in. They, they start with some project. They don't get any results. They don't see any value on it. And you keep trying to fix it. You try, try it one more month. You add some kind of incremental change to it. They still don't see any change. And then one year you know, later, they still, oh, fuck, we don't see any value. I don't think AI is for us in, or data science is for us in some way. And I think that's because they didn't, they failed slowly in, to be short. Yeah, and failing slowly usually exacerbates the shortcomings of the human brain. Uh, take, for example, the sunken cost fallacy. Mm -hmm. So the exactly. more effort you put into something, the harder you're making it for yourself to admit defeat or making a mistake. Pot committed to be speaking about Pot, poker terms. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I, I have, I have some, some recent um, statements. I, I'm not sure. I, I, we, we will take it after. <laughs> but someone said something which is sort of completely they the lost some cost fallacy. I'm, mm. I'm experiencing it right now, mm. and and uh, really tricky. Also, really sometimes, obviously, when you think about it rationally, but in a political business environment, the very, human brain, the yeah, human again, brain is very difficult. We like to pretend that we care about objective things, but uh, we may not even realize it. Uh, sort of consciously, but we care about the human things. We care about looking good, getting the cred, uh, respect, mm. uh, a sense of purpose, whether it's founded or not. <laughs> so we care about those things, but the problem is that we don't want to admit that to others or sometimes to ourselves. And that kind of intrinsic uh, deception and self-deception, it, it doesn't mix well with data science. Quite often, 
quite often the job of data science is to present a very uncomfortable truth. <laughs> yeah. And we people are so good at um, denying it. Uh, another point from the book is that sometimes you want less insight from your data. Because if you keep asking questions, you'll come across something that will give you that plausible deniability so that you can stick with your pet hypothesis. Mm. So one way to, to deal with it is to define the rules of the game before playing it. Mm. To or pre-register your study as they do in, well, should be doing in academia. So you say, we're going to look at this number and if it's higher than five, we're going to do A. If it's lower than five, we're going to do B, whether people want it or not. Because if you don't do this, you can always move the goalposts. Mm. And um, the time is running away as well. And, and if we move a bit more to more philosophical questions and more long-term thinking, um, we know some companies are really good at using data and AI, and some companies that you work with has been data native in some ways. Mm. Other companies, it, it takes a longer time to actually transform themselves, I guess, yeah. into actually finding the value and, and trusting it and actually having a proper value for it. Do you see, and if we go a bit global on this, and we can easily see that some tech companies, you know, that we know are, are really good at this and they have scaled their own business by using data and AI in a way to automate things that, you know, make them scale in, in insane ways. While still so many companies in Sweden and Europe perhaps are not finding the same type of advantage. Mm. Do you think that will change? Are you optimistic in this way? Do you think that the companies in Sweden and, and Europe perhaps are going to start to catch up with some other big tech companies? Or, it, or is the change, the gap between them going to in, continue to increase? Well, I suppose some kinds of businesses that can really leverage data or maybe cannot even exist without data. Mm. Then, of course, you win and die by data. Right. But it's not the case for all businesses. Right. Maybe if I'm a barbershop, the way I'm using data is probably not going to define my success. But that's an interesting example. Actually, I remember from some AI Sweden um, seminar or something, I don't recall exactly, but someone said, you know, at a barbershop or a hairdresser, you know, what are they going to have uh, for use for data and AI? And I remember someone saying, you know, that, well, actually, why not? You know, if some, you know, hairdressers are starting to use AI as a recommender system or whatnot, or for sales purposes, or for a way to get people to understand what kind of hairdo should I really have and use some kind of nice, you know, generative AI to, to help people to do that, do that, wouldn't they get like a big incentive that will push them ahead of other hairdressers or barbershops as well? Possibly, but you can also argue, obviously it's a hypothetical, you can argue that for many people, they just want to go to a nice barbershop and have a little chat with someone they know. Mm. Uh, and maybe they like the atmosphere, the vibe, and they're not particularly computer savvy. Mm. Um, 
So I use the barbershop as an example, and uh, it doesn't mean that you cannot use data in that area. Mm. My point is that it's probably going to be less defining, at least in the foreseeable future. Yeah, in short term, at least. Uh, yeah, because, yeah it's, it's, it's more about the overall experience. And I don't think there are many people who can, well, maybe I'm speaking as a, <laughs> as a man here, I don't think there are many people who can um, even understand like how good a haircut is. For example, I come home, I don't know if this is a good haircut or not until my girlfriend speaks to me. Yeah. So she knows if it's good or not, I don't know. If I didn't have a girlfriend, I would probably go to a barbershop and I would have no idea that I look ugly as fuck. Yeah, I actually cut my own hair and, and it's actually horribly poor. How do you so. cut your own hair? Wait, Just wait, take wait. a scissor and what? cut it. Yeah. Wait, wait, for, for, unpack. <laughs> unpack. Oh, you can't do it. Yeah. Well, right. What? Yeah. And just have a, have a mirror and you, and I use like a trimmer thing and cut it. Really? Really? Well, your, your girlfriend could do it for you. She hates that. You know? She thinks, oh, fuck, are oh, you going to cut yourself again? <laughs> But uh, I, I wanted because to I, do the. I must. I, I mean, you, 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 I know you cut your hair not that long ago. Oh, that no, looks pretty good. And you did it yourself. I did. It's because everybody but, goes and says, I, I, I cut my hair. Good job, at least. The You're doing a good I job. I wanted to have a permission to cut the hair of, of our dog as well, but I'm not allowed to. So. No, no. So the girlfriend allows you to cut your <laughs> so hair, the dog, but not the, the dog's girl. more important. Yes. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. But I like that because most people says, oh, I went and oh, I cut my hair. You didn't cut your hair. Your hairdresser did. Mm. But for you, Anders. Yeah, I did. Mm. That's funny. Yeah. Anyway, I hope at some point I'll have an automated way to cut my hair. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, maybe most of the industries at some point will be disrupted mm. by data or AI at some point, yeah. but that horizon can be very different. Exactly. Yeah. But and, uh, and maybe this is one, uh, the last point, because I, I, we, I've been working lately with, uh, with a colleague of mine, Mikael Klingvall, to try to understand why do we need to work and become data and AI ready, or, or will it impact everything? And, you know, how would it look like? And, and, and We've been coming up and defining something we almost, we, we call it innovation pressure. Mm -hmm. So basically you, you can, f you can see from, you know, how, how, what from the stone age going all the way to where we are now, these cycles for uh, disruptive innovations that sort of sets the next scene, you know, from ceramics. And then you can have the, you know, you can go into the paper printer. You can talk about, you know, uh, computer and then, and, and this sort of, the, you know, the, the, the iterations is going so fast now. So it becomes all a blur from, I, I guess, from the, the digital age with the internet and, and now AI. So all this means somewhere that the in, innovation pressure, I think is there. And, and so it now industry by industry by industry, they will come. It, it's more about when is it relevant, I guess. Would you agree with that? Well, um, <clears throat> in my chapter on automation, actually cover the question of when. Yeah. Because, well, sometimes just the question if, if we should automate something. And then even if we need to automate something, you, you, may, you may want to ask the question when, is yes. this the right time? Because uh, pretty much your automation is a thing. Speaking about that, I heard some two famous scientists um, just the other week make a, made a bet mm. on if we, in 2030, We'll have self-driving cars in most major cities 
in the US in this case, that is on level five, basically meaning mm. you're not even able to take over uh, and run that. And, and then they have you know, one person betting on, on one option and, and then the other on the other. What do you think? Do you think in 2030, we will have, even in Sweden perhaps, self-driving cars on level five? I was actually trying to make a bet with a friend of mine, yeah. but with a very with, with very good odds, and uh, the horizon would be the end of 2025, if I remember correctly. Oh, and he was claiming that there isn't even a one percent probability of that happening, and I said, <laughs> "Do you want to make a bet with Ooh, those that's odds?" That's a great. great bet. Yeah. So one, I, like, he... I like to get in on that as well. <laughs> but what, so, yeah. what is the definition that you will have some car that? basically in a level five way will drive you from point A to B in, in a Swedish city. Or? I think we're talking about me taking a ride in a self-driving car somewhere in St. Albans, which is not a major ah, okay. city. In the uh, UK. That is okay. quite feasible. In my opinion, that is quite uh, feasible. I think it's more likely than 1%, but the, he didn't want to take the bet. He claimed not being uh, a betting man. But, uh, <laughs> put your money where your mouth is. Yeah? That's what I say. I mean, you can more or less do it today. I mean, there are a number of cities where you have uh, cabs that are robo-cabs. So, I mean, it already exists today in some you know, limited it, form. It's sort so. of happening. Yeah. Yeah, the question is how quickly it will scale up. Exactly. Yeah, That's the only question. I, it's I not really it. a question of if. No. Yeah, it's just how quickly. And yeah. uh, three, four years, I think. Uh, it's it's a very long period by modern standards. Mm. I mean, like, so this is the strange thing. In in many ways, this does, this is doing my head in. In many ways. The wheels are spinning faster and faster and faster, and and and, and the cycles going faster, and and it, it's just mind blowing. Then you come into your big enterprise you work at, and you want to drive change, and for some reason it doesn't feel fast sometimes when you talk about change in the company. So isn't that isn't that that's also sort of the dichotomy? Like everything is spinning faster and faster and faster, but do for I some re- companies. for some companies or for the world and for this? But do for I for the re- research society for the reason? But but then I go into Scania to my company. Uh, we were playing. We we were screwing around with this ERP rollout for two years now. Did we? You know, oh. slow. It Isn't that crazy how we can feel fast and slow in the same way? I mean, like, I have you experienced what I'm saying? Do you know what I mean? Yes, yes, I, I, I definitely understand what you're talking about. And um, I, you, you can also experience it in, in a different way, but I think it's the same idea. Because thanks to the internet, you can always find people who are doing imp- impressive stuff that's just so out of your league that exactly. makes you feel sort of bad and embarrassed about your life. And then if you go out uh, in your real life and then you see sort of normal people who surround you, you think, actually, I'm doing pretty well. Mm. And uh, yeah, well above average, 10 percentile. Like, why, why, why yeah, what, what, what did I worry about? So it may be the case of having that sort of power law distribution where you have a small fraction of people or trailblazers, just amazing people, you know, getting us to Mars, you know, designing self-driving cars, you know, beating humans in a poker. Who can you be thinking about when saying that? <laughs> First principle <laughs> guy, he already revealed himself. And then you have uh, 99.99% uh, of people who are just getting on with their lives. 
And there is nothing wrong with that. It's just that a new technology, it, it, it creates such leverage. Yeah. So are you saying it will be an increasing divide in some way that some will be rushing ahead so much faster than others and some others will be just People talk a lot about inequality. Yeah. But I don't think it's often mentioned that growing inequality is, I think, basically an unavoidable consequence of new technology. That's the point. AI divide, we've been talking about a lot here. We, we even coined the word around this because mm. when we are now going into this next, I mean, like, I, I'm, I'm predicting the next macro life cycle or, or Alexander Bard meant that the internet is the starting point of the next macro life cycle. But that, but I, let's call it the data and AI's first society, like everything lives in software and algorithms. And, and if we follow what the best of the best are doing, you know, the, the AI companies of the world are slowly but surely innovating and putting then innovation pressure on everybody else. And slowly but surely it's going in, in a certain direction. And I think the main topic now is maybe now not everybody, this, this inequality gap was like, you, you will have a haves and have nots around automation, optimization at 10,000 X efficiency versus, you know, so I think that's the inequality that will happen. But on the other hand, a lot of advancements yeah. trickle down. Yes. So what used to be a bleeding edge technology mm. just becomes a commodity. Yes. So AI, for example, gets commodified. Yes. So now if you want to use AI in your product, you don't need an AI expert or a brilliant software engineer in your company. You just pay $10 and you press a button and you've got your AI. And maybe that's the point. It will come to everybody, but in different forms. If you're on the bleeding edge, you need to, you need to invent it, right? And I think that's a really good way to potentially start to end the show as well. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an optimistic way of saying it will start to commoditize in some way and it will be really easy and you, you won't be required to have a super advanced data science team in the future. It will trickle down. It will instead be a normal part of whatever kind of software engineering the you know product you have. AI is just another module, module that you have at your disposal to, to build your system. And in that way, it actually will democratize in some way and make data and AI available for everyone. Do you think that? Yeah, behind all this inequality, we shouldn't be blind to the growth of the median. For mm. example, even in the poorest countries, people have cell phones. Mm. So maybe they, they couldn't even get landlines because they were so far behind. Mm. So the leapfrog them jump Yeah, but uh, things pick up and they do get access to at least some benefits of, 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 the, of the new technology. So the gap may be growing but the whole distribution keeps moving in the right direction. This is interesting. So we can talk about the AI divide or the tech divide that, you know, the, the one who is the extreme tech giant, you know, they were five years ahead. I, I argue they are 30 years ahead. Uh, in 10 at least. But, yeah. You know, no, I, I argued more than 10 to normal business, you know, for normal business to get to where Tesla is. Mm. This is more than 10 years in my opinion. Mm. And okay. But, at the same time, what is happening over here is stretching us, tech is trickling down, mm. and the whole distribution curve is moving in the right direction. Mm. That's a yeah. really good uh, vision, I think. Yeah, I would concur. I think that's the perfect ending note. Yeah, I think so. Positive. 
positive and quite smart. It will be fine. It will be fine. It will be fine. That's where we end up in. So uh, let's ask the last couple of questions. You know, what is exciting or was something happening fun in, in, in the future, in, in, in this year for you, in your life? Something to look forward for, you know. Something happening in coming weeks, months, privately, professionally. Something you're looking forward to. Well, my girlfriend and I are thinking about buying a house. I don't know if it's exciting or <laughs> we'll see what happens. It's a milestone for sure. Getting on that property ladder. Um, otherwise, Arsenal finishing fourth, hopefully. That's then it. we'll be in the Champions League next season. Mm -hmm. So awesome. That's, that's going to be a new experience. Yeah, that's a good one. Mm. And hopefully, yeah, if, if Japan opens up, it would be nice to go there because uh, I like go there for my vacations, but uh, the pandemic has ruined it. But then I need to, when you now go back to, uh, on a vacation to Japan, what, what are you most looking forward to do in Japan? Just to walk around, really. Is hang out in, in, is it Tokyo for you? It's mostly Tokyo. Um, it's just such a different environment. And um, I think uh, there is a lot to be said for just changing the scenery. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be anything special. You don't have to go on some crazy rides or do something particularly exotic. Just being in a different place where everything is different and even yeah. a 7-Eleven is like an amusement park because <laughs> you don't know what you can eat and what's plastic and uh, what does this thing do. Um, so yeah, something, something simple like that. That sounds awesome. A, a trip to Tokyo, a new house, and then sh <laughs> Champions League for Arsenal. That's a good year. It's uh, quite a hat trick. That's a hat trick. <laughs> That's a hat trick. Awesome. So last question. Um, if you would recommend us, who do you want to see on or listen to it on, uh, on this show? Any recommendations who we should ask on the show? I've checked your list of episodes, past episodes, and I don't think you've had him on. So Matte or Matthias Andersson, who used to work at King, I think he's with Embark Studios now. Mm. And uh, he, he was a legend at King. And uh, I don't remember a single boring conversation with him. So you might a great want to consider doing more than Matthias two hours Andersson. with him. Matthias yeah. Andersson. Yeah. Love it. You I must think have he heard was, of him. He, he was, I think, in the last uh, Red Eye AI Summit a week ago or something. Mm. I would yeah, be surprised. He, he, um, he made an awesome presentation, I must say. Yeah, you, you should try and get him on. I'm, I'm, I'm sure the conversation would be uh, legendary. Mm. Cool. That's Very a good idea. Great. I love it. So thank you so much. What an awesome show. Some philosophy, talking about a book, that's so much fun. Mm. Oh. Are we going to do another book? Yeah. Coming up? Well, one quote I read is that you have your whole life to write your first book <laughs> and you only, you only have a year to write your second. Oh. So I'm not quite sure yet. Uh, it's not, it, it's a maybe, mm. it's a maybe. Tell me you, when you finish the first one, then I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you so much for having me. This has been uh, truly a pleasure. Awesome. Same for you. True pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.